Greetings. You're listening to the Bonnie Boat Sailing Podcast. My name is Chris Smith. Whether you're a grizzled old salt, pining for the days of wire rope halyards, or a greenhorn, wondering what the hell a dolphin striker is, this is the podcast that seeks to fill the need for everybody's third most favorite pastime. That is, talking about sailing. Hello, pod people. Happy fall. I hope this finds you well. This month I have for you a conversation I had with Fiona McGlynn and Robin Urquhart of Waterborne Magazine. Robin and Fiona did a major refit to their Do-435 Monarch, sailed her down the west coast of North America, and crossed the Pacific from Mexico to Australia via the Marquesas and Tuamotus, uh, among others. Uh, so they have a lot of miles into their keel uh, and some, some great advice to share. Uh, and upon their return, they started Waterborne Magazine uh, in cahoots with Good Old Boat. Uh, and it's an online magazine geared more towards younger sailors, uh, although not exclusively. Uh, so it, it lines up with the goals of, of this podcast pretty well. Um, and we have a wide-ranging conversation. We touch on uh, sailboat arbitrage, the dangers of sleep deprivation, uh, the importance of finding a watch schedule that works, millennial participation in sailing, uh, orthodoxy in uh, in the sailing culture, and uh, and what's going on with them in the world of Waterborne Magazine. Uh, so I hope you enjoy, uh, and certainly if you're not already familiar with their work, I think this interview will convince you to check out what they have going on. Um, you will notice that the recording quality of my voice is not up to the usual standards. Uh, it's a bit of a long story, but Fiona and Robin saved my bacon. Uh, I'm recorded their end, uh, and it doesn't get in the way of, of understanding what's being said. Um, so, without further preamble, I present Fiona McGlynn and Robin Urquhart of Waterborne Magazine. So, so you guys run Waterborne, uh, an online magazine about sailing geared towards younger sailors uh, and I'm, I'm super excited to, to dig into that with you but but first maybe you guys can just give us kind of the bird's eye view of, of what you've been up to in, in terms of sailing these past uh, past few years yeah sure um so we have actually just finished up a trip um that began i suppose close to three years ago now um even before that we we'd been uh living on a boat for two years in vancouver um, which initially appealed to us because it was way cheaper than renting an apartment in, in Vancouver. Uh, so we, yeah, we did that for two years. And, um, when we were living aboard in this, uh, marina, um, there were tons of other people who had been on, uh, trips and gone around the world. So at a certain point, we thought, Hey, we could do that. And we went sailing, uh, for two and a half years from Vancouver down to Mexico and then across the Pacific and, uh, sold our boat in Australia. And we sold our boat in, well, we left Australia in December and moved back to Canada. And since then, we've been boatless and the boat sold sometime in March. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. So what is, you know, we can, we'll start from the end here, but what was that transition back to, to shoreside like, uh, life like for you guys? It was actually very smooth. I think, um, I think a lot of our friends who've stopped cruising have found they go through sort of like a six month depression, um, adjusting, but, um, we didn't really go back to what we were doing before, which had been working in office jobs in the city. We live in a, a small town now of 300 people 
and um, we work from home and we have lots of freedom. And uh, we also dove into a new project, which was building a house. Um, so I think, I think for us, it was just kind of the ball kept rolling as far as our lifestyles were concerned. And um, yeah. Yeah, I think uh, our lives actually probably look more right now like they did on the boat uh, on our trip than they actually did before we left in that we have like I think for Fiona especially for me to some degree that trip really changed the trajectory of our lives we realized uh, what we could do sort of remotely how we could work without having to work in an office and so it, I, our transition wasn't so hard, I think, for that reason. But we've heard lots of other friends who went back to the life that they were living before they went on a, on a big trip have had a much more difficult time transitioning back. Cool. That's that's neat. That's, that sounds like a real uh, a real success story uh, for you guys. That's 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 neat. I know certainly my wife and I when we we did a um, a six month trip down the ICW and certainly coming back to old jobs it was it was a bit of a uh, bit of a shock. <laughs> yeah, I, I totally get that. I totally get that. And I do think there are some things that have changed for us. Um, one thing I really noticed was different was the stresses on the boat versus stresses in everyday modern living are quite different. Um, on the boat, you know, you have these big you know, cortisol injected moments where it's like, oh God, we got to fix something or, you know, we got to deal with it now. Um, and then you kind of go back to no stress, whereas there's this sort of ambient stress of like 101 little tiny things that you're worried about in modern day living. Um, and I found that to be an adjustment. Mm -hmm. um, I also found being around people a lot more to be an adjustment. You know, you kind of get wrapped up in your own little world when it's just the two of you on a boat. And then, um, um, yeah, joining a, a sort of, land-based community has been um, a big part of what we've really enjoyed, but it's been a big part of the transition as well. Yeah. And, uh, and, but there've been really wonderful things about the transition too. And that like every time I drop a screwdriver, I don't immediately <laughs> panic and scramble for it before it falls in the water. I can right actually on. just yeah. drop things. Uh, you can walk out the back door and go for a walk. Mm -hmm. um, there's, yeah. there are places to put things. We're not always moving. Like for two, pretty much two and a half years, we were in constant motion because we were always on the boat and on the ocean. So it's nice to sleep in a bed and there's nothing. It's completely still. And we yeah. fantasized about that when we were on our trip, <laughs> just being still. And we got that. So that's one of the nicer parts of it as well. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. We, I know we, uh, we were pretty happy to have a... Running water in a kitchen again. It's, it's definitely, and, and showers. It's a big, big quality of life for sure. <laughs> but, and have you found that since your ICW trip that I don't know how long ago it was for you, but do you, have you sort of normalized running water and electricity and all the conveniences of modern life or do you still find that you appreciate it? You, you catch yourself sort of just running hot water. Big, like this yeah, is no, amazing. Yeah, yeah no, we've one hundred percent normalized it at this point. <laughs> you just turn on the tap, and you don't even think about it. Exactly. I guess, and I, I, I guess that means we need to get back out on a trip. I think. Hey, yeah, maybe that's, that's, you know, that's, maybe, that's not a bad yeah. idea. Actually, that's how, if yeah. you if you don't think hot water coming out of a tap is incredible, then you need to go. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, uh, so let's, let's, let's back up. So what, what kind of work did you guys have to do, uh, to the happy monarch, right? That's the boat, boat name. Uh, yeah, her name was monarch. Um, monarch. and, uh, oh boy, that's a long laundry list. I can start that one <laughs> off because I did a lot of it. Um, so we bought the bought monarch, um, which didn't have a name at the time. 
for a pretty rock bottom price because it was uh, on a mooring ball in the middle of nowhere and hadn't really been uh, attended to in probably 12 years. So it was she was a bit of a uh, junk heap when we got her. And we lived on her for two years and sort of plunked away at stuff, just mostly cosmetics, new Dodger, Bimini, stuff like that, and paint and grab rails, etc. Stanchions. And then uh, when we decided we were going on our big trip, then we realized we had to do a major retrofit. And so uh, we moved into a boatyard for three months and we lived on the boat in the boatyard. And we worked probably 12 plus hour days and we did pretty much everything we could think of to do. We pulled the mast and the rigging. We recorded a lot of the deck. Uh, we replaced the stern tube. We took the keel off and put it back on. Uh, okay. we did, uh, we replaced all the sails, um, all the running rigging, uh, redid all the stanchions, rebedded everything that we could find, Resurfaced the uh, changed all the Lexan in the windows, uh, rebedded everything that went through the deck and the hull we rebedded. So we did, uh, yeah, the steering system, the rudder, like we basically rebuilt that boat. All, and, the, all the electronics were new as yeah. well to yeah. put in a new DC panel. Yeah, everything was new. Mm -hmm. Batteries, charge controller. The only thing we didn't change was the engine. Cool. Yeah, that sounds like that sounds like a, a, a pretty major project. Um, what did you, anything you kind of took away from that project in, in hindsight now? Uh, anything you would have done differently or, um, or wish you had done? Oh, baby. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good question well i i will start off just by saying that finally enough one of the the times in our whole trip that we reflect the most fondly on was that time in the boatyard working 12 hours hour day like we just had a blast and, and i think we took so much away from it in terms of just our confidence in the boat learning the boat um i would 100 percent do it again um but I think that's maybe just a part of who we are as well, project people. Yeah, well, we yeah, we sometimes we say we would do it again. Certainly, if it was our first time, we'd do it again because it taught us so much about how our boat worked, and that gave us a lot more confidence. If anything went wrong at sea, we'd already rebuilt it, so rebuilding it again wasn't a big deal. And and we did have to do that. We had to drop the rudder in the water at one point and uh, mess around with it, but we'd already dropped the rudder so many times it wasn't that big a deal. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> um. But. If we were to do it again, uh, and I think a lesson that we definitely did learn is that... Um, there are smarter ways to do it financially, yeah, for sure. Yeah, we put a lot of money into the boat. We bought it for about 9000 We put about 50000 into it to get it to cross the ocean. And, and, then we, and then we sold it for forty five or something. 53 53 Yeah. Um, minus, not, you know, that's import That's not too bad. That sounds like you guys did all right in, in terms of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah financially, it was, it was economically, fine. it was okay. I mean, the trip was pretty cheap from that experience perspective but all our time like that was three months in the boatyard um and we spent also more than most boats out there um we i think we missed out on seeing stuff when we were sailing because we were constantly you know dialing in the boat um which is maybe just a personality thing but certainly people on newer better found boats um seem to be seeing more i think the way to do it actually if i was to recommend anybody else to do what we've done I would get a boat that's already been outfitted for ocean crossing because it's just such a big thing to do. And luckily we had a lot of the skills. We knew how to work with fiberglass and I worked as a carpenter. So um, we had a lot of foundational skills for repairing a boat. Um, but I would I would probably get a boat that's already crossed an ocean, just needs a, a little bit of retrofitting, like new electronics and maybe rebedding some stuff. But going from 
like almost a, a bare hull up to an ocean boat, um, I think is too much work. And I wouldn't go about it again, even though we had a really good mm-hmm. time. It was, it's a, it was too much work and there's just smarter ways to do it. Yeah. The other really cool thing that we learned about actually from our broker in Australia, um, he and his members of his family have, um, cruised their whole lives. And every time they do, they actually buy a boat um, upwind, sail it downwind. So say starting in Europe, ending up in Australia and they sail it from one market to another such that, um, they're always making, you know, like 10, 20% on their, on their, um, sale over, over what they paid for and put into it. Um, and they've gotten so good at, it. I think his daughter recently, um, did a, did a trip across the Pacific and she actually paid for everything, including all of her, you know, costs and, um, miscellaneous stuff along the way just by buying and selling in the right place. But to do that, you kind of have to buy a nice boat because, you know, getting a 20% um, return on a $200,000 boat's, you know, a lot more than getting 20% on a $50,000 boat. So his advice was buy a nice new boat that has a real resale value um, and um, and then go from there. So that's another if way that's to think your plan. about if you're, it. If, if you're planning to resell it wherever you get to. Yeah. Cool. No, that's that's a that's a that's a good angle. No, and is in, in your experience is Australia kind of the place to do that? Yeah, uh, in our experience, and it changes all the t- it it changes from time to time, but it's been consistent over the last decade. It seems as long as the Australian and uh, in our case Canadian dollar are close to parity, or even American dollar doesn't really matter. But um, then Australia is a much better market to sell a boat because it's more of a captive market. They don't have any manufacturers, monohull manufacturers in Australia and uh, it's an island so it's hard to get to. So the boats fetch a significant percentage more than they would uh, in North America and that can be seen on um, like market online marketplaces like Yacht World. You can see boats in Australia are consistently selling for 20-30% more and I think we got 30% more in Australia than we would have in North America for our boat. So and, and it sold way faster. I yeah, think so our boat too. sold in two months, and our the sister ship of our boat that we just kind of randomly met on the trip. So that was pretty cool. Their boat sold for the same price as our boat, fifty three thousand, and they sold in seven days. So the market in Australia is hot, and um, and you can sell for more. So yeah, it's for anybody wanting to do a trip like that, America to Australia is a good one. Wow, yeah, that's that's fascinating. That's a that's very neat um so i, I want to talk about about your pacific crossing because that that trip to the marquesas is you know that's definitely a trip that i i hope to do someday do uh and i think that's a passage that I, mean, I think a lot of sailors that's that's like the dream you know is that trip so what was that what was that crossing like for you guys it had a bit of everything uh, actually um we turned back after the first 24 hours um, because we realized we had a, a comms issue. Communications and, issue. And uh, yeah, the first the first sort of 10 days, I would say, were really rough. Um, more from a, less from a weather perspective and more just from a kind of getting our shit together with, uh, uh, you know, various things not working. Our water maker went on the fritz. Um, we kept hearing this this sort of odd cracking noise around the mast that, you know, took a while for us to identify the unknown, at least it was for us in, in a real way, because we'd always been coming down the coast and, you know, never more than a day, um, day from land. Um, but um, what we really learned, I would say, is is actually how to sail. And like, that sounds uh, kind of crazy, maybe, to be learning to sail on your Pacific crossing. But 
Um, until that moment, I had no idea how reliant we were on our engine. Um, you know, like normally you, you let winds get light, you just turn your engine on. Um, you don't try to really work with it. At least that's what, what we'd done going down the coast. We weren't trying to make the boat quiet in, you know, very intermittent light breeze, which is what we had for the first first week or two. Um, so that was a real lesson for us in, in sailing in light airs, um, light air and big swell. Yeah, I think uh, back your question is how was it crossing? And it was, like Fiona said, it was everything. It was boring at times. It was very exciting at times. Um, and we learned a lot. But I'd say it was a bit harder than we thought it was going to be uh, in terms of sort of the sleep deprivation and the variety of conditions. But also, and that was just because we were unused to it. But I was also struck by just the consistency of the weather. I was rereading an article that I wrote about um, crossing the intertropical convergence zone and avoiding squalls and stuff like that. And I remember our our wind was so consistent. Like the trade winds are really that. It was we had fifteen to twenty knots or fifteen to twenty five most of the trip, and we barely ever needed to use the motor except for three or four days when we had very light winds. So. Um, it was in some ways it was very difficult in some ways it was um if we were to do it again it would be a lot easier as fiona said i think a lot of our struggle was just uh, a lack of familiarity with sailing long distances in the open ocean it's intimidating when you're out there and the waves are a lot bigger because they're un there's no refraction or anything from the coastline so you're in 20 foot swells or 15 foot swells and it seems really big but it's the period's really long and it's actually really mellow yeah, yeah. And so how did you guys go about getting over that kind of initial hump uh, to get that experience offshore? I mean, was that your first major offshore passage? I guess you would have been doing overnights on the way down the coast. Yeah, on the way down the coast, um, I think we had a five-day and a seven-day, and there may have been an 11-day in there somewhere. So, or maybe it was seven. Yeah. So yeah, we, we've seven had we've had uh, we've had you know several nights out going down the coast, and we sure. and we went out a uh, hundred plus miles, um, partly just to get some of that experience on the way down the coast when we knew that we were coming back in. So Vancouver to San Francisco, we went out, and then from San Diego down to Cabo San Lucas, we went uh, quite a bit offshore there too, mostly just to feel, partly to feel the ocean swell. It was a quicker route, but um, we wanted to see what offshore was going to be like. So that's so we did spend. A few days at sea, and, and it was uh, a great lesson. We really, yeah. we really I, 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 highly recommend it. Yeah, it's. <laughs> yeah. I would say it's requisite. Like yeah. for sure, a, f a few days on the open ocean is requisite before crossing. Requisite, and I would also say do it without your engine because. Um, yeah, don't rely on the don't, engine. Don't Always use sail. the engine at all uh, on those when you're really trying to test yourself because that was such a game changer for us not being able to use the engine. Well, one guy when we left. Um, uh, in our fleet crossing that year, which is two years ago now, there was about 25 boats crossing from where we left, which was La Cruz, which is outside of Puerto Vallarta. And I'd gotten a little bit friendly with a guy. He was solo sailing and he was crossing at the same time. We left around this almost on the same day. And um, we struggled with the lack of wind, but the large swell. We didn't know how to handle that condition because we, like Fiona said, we'd always turn our motor on. So we became sleep deprived, like properly sleep deprived in a way that uh, we'd never done before and getting a little bit nervous because we hadn't slept in about four days, I think at one point. And, and um, the other guy, he was caught in the same conditions. And unfortunately, nobody ever heard from him again because they think oh, wow. the, he got so sleep deprived that he made a 
some sort of large error. And yeah. when his family, the last call he made was on his sat phone and his family uh, talked to him and he wasn't making any sense. And they figure it was sleep deprivation that had caused it. So it's, it's imp- that, I mean, the light conditions were the most challenging conditions on the mm-hmm. trip probably. And, and we just relied on the motor. So that would be our big advice to anybody else doing that is sail in those conditions. Try really hard to figure that out. Yeah, wow, that, that's quite a story. Um, so how did you guys um, set yourselves up to avoid sleep de- deprivation? Uh, trial and error, I suppose. We did, uh, we tried a variety of things, three on, three off. Um, we did the, there's a five, four, three, two system. Um, so we, we tried different things. Ultimately, what worked really well for us, um, was three on, three off in the evening and whoever's tired in the day, go and sleep whenever you can grab the sleep. And then what really made the critical difference between sustainability and just spinning out with exhaustion was sleeping. The person who was um, on watch would sleep in 20-minute increments. Um, And actually, at one point, we were even sleeping 48-minute increments when we were really far, far out and there was no traffic. Um, So we wouldn't, when you were close to shore and on watch, there was no, no sleeping on watch. But when we got further out, we'd increase those little 20 minute naps um and we i found personally that just made all the difference yeah we actually caught up on sleep and solo sailors who who sleep uh, they sleep a lot sometimes when they're on watch they'll just actually sleep when you're in the middle of the ocean and ais has made such a difference for everybody because Mm -hmm. um it's such a good alarm system so uh we actually after the first week we were quite sleep deprived and then we started catching up on sleep by the time we ended up in the marquesas i don't even think we were sleep deprived anymore no we were just tired <laughs> like, uh, like just tired of sailing but not not exhausted anymore <laughs> you, you hear it a lot too like the three the first three days are the worst and i found yeah it just got better and better and better until as robin said we were a few days from being in and it was um yeah just normal yeah we were living a normal life out there we drank we were drinking coffee uh which we we didn't do on any of our other passages because we didn't want to mess up our circadian rhythm and but we started feeling so comfortable out there and we were getting enough sleep that we yeah we just went into normal it was kind of just became normal life and when we saw the marquesas for the for the first time we expected to be completely elated um but we were so into the routine of life at sea they were just like oh there's the Marquesas. And we weren't even, we didn't jump or anything. We were just like, okay, I guess we're getting in today. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's, that's, that's cool. That's, that's neat. I was going to add one thing too, because uh, Robin wrote a really great article on um, things that break at sea. Um, that was one thing that totally blew me away. 80% of the boats that we crossed with um, had significant breakages, whether it was rigging uh, water makers, engine, so on and so forth. So, so what, um, what was the, uh, where was, was the, the, where was the article? Uh, what things break article? I'm just trying to think was for good old boat. Yeah. It yeah, was for good so old boat. Th- that would be out there um, for anybody who's interested in seeing in our year of all the, I think there were a few hundred boats you surveyed and, and looked yeah. at what broke Yeah, as far as carrying spares and that kind of thing. Yeah. Cool. You know, I'll, I'll definitely, um, I'd like to read that myself, and I'll I'll, get, I'll dig up the link for that if, if it's if it's out there for sure. Um, so, and I I also saw that you guys um, took crew along on a, on a few of those legs. How did that work out for you? Mm. 
Yeah, that's that's you've done a little bit of research. You're asking good questions. They're not they're not they're not really super easy ones to answer. Uh, the first crew member we had was from Mazatlan. No, yeah, no, from um, Wymus down to Puerto Vallarta. But and that was a four day passage, and he was going to come across the Pacific with us from Mexico to the Marquesas. And after that experience, we realized that it wasn't a good fit. And so he went his way, which worked out really well. And we, we stayed friends, uh, but it was a little bit awkward. But um, and then on our second crew member was from the Marquesas to the Tuamotus, which was a five day passage. And he'd already crossed a couple oceans. Um, so he knew what he was getting into, even if he wasn't a very experienced sailor. Um, and that worked out pretty well but overall i think that we found crew more um effort than not having crew whereas we thought that it would be the other way around initially when we got into our routine at sea um we were most happy that way um because we could we just know each other very well we get along very well um and there there, there's a lot more freedom you're if you have crew you're responsible for them and there's a, a lot of things that you would do uh and things that you you know ways of behaving that are you you don't have to do when it's just the two of you like you don't like wearing clothes for example or cooking a meal or making sure that they're getting enough sleep like there's just you feel responsible for that person um and so we found that we actually preferred after our experiences we preferred to go without crew yeah, yeah, no, it, it seems like a tricky thing. I know I, I crewed on a boat down uh, in the Caribbean 1500 uh, two years ago now, and the boat I was on, we did great. It was a great group of guys, but there was definitely some other boats in that in that rally that, that had some issues. Um, so it's, it seems like it's kind of a, some, some com- complicated calculus in, in figuring out how to make that work. Yeah, I think that's super true. And I think that one of the, before something like a big crossing, I think the, the one of the big lessons we learned was spend a bit, spend a bit of time and go for a, a like a, a, multi, a trial sale yeah, with that person a couple of days, uh, because you'll learn a lot about each other in that time and whether or not it's a good fit. So I'd definitely try something out with somebody before taking them on a big passage. But I think also like, you know, a couple dynamic is a little bit different. We had friends who took crew and had good experiences. We had friends who took crew and didn't have good experiences. So yeah. like, and it is a personal style thing too. Like I think Robin and I are maybe a little um, like to be sort of regimented in how we do things. And it was really cute. One of our crew members once said to us like, guys, like you're so uptight. It's no, like, he said, he's like, this, this isn't is the, like, Navy. Is the Navy. And I was like, no, it, it is, is the Navy. <laughs> <laughs> You've got it wrong. And he's the, he didn't come across. Yeah, yeah. So that like, it's, it's a personal style thing too. Yeah. <laughs> and now nobody's gonna want to ever come on our boat because it's the navy. <laughs> it's fine. Grab a swab. Yeah, that's yeah. right. <laughs> Good stuff. Um, so, uh, so Fiona, you wrote a, an article for for Sailing Magazine about uh, voyaging aboard a, a two captain sailboat, which I thought was was very interesting. So talk a little bit about that and. And how you guys approach making uh, decisions together? Yeah, that was that was something we co-wrote a while back, um, and I suppose I'm trying to think back to that article and what some of those those key points were. I think um, the, the boat actually taught us a lot about um, 
our, our relationship dynamic and how to, to deal with like stressful situations and how we work together as a team in stressful situations. Um, and, uh, I think some of the things that, that we came up with were, uh, certainly like that, that we each had our own spheres of, of real confidence and when to let the other person, um, sort of take the lead, I guess, in those different areas. So for example, like Robin, as you mentioned, is a really wonderful woodworker and he's very, very um, competent and talented when it comes to, you know, fixing mechanical problems, doing things with his hands. Um, I don't like being told what to do. <laughs> and so when we'd be working on, uh, you know, in the yard and I'd be uh, just like insistent on doing things my own way, um, you know, I learned pretty quickly after cr ending up with sort of puddles of semi-cured Secaflex and like teary sort of outcomes <laughs> that maybe I should have just sort of listened to the way that he suggested doing it. So like I had a, personally a little bit of a pride thing there and just learning um, and accepting, okay, this is, yeah, this is where Robin um, knows a lot more than I do. And I'm just going to ask. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Which is, I think is, yeah, it makes me sound a bit like an autocrat and I no, don't think I ever tell you no, what no, to no. do, but uh, I think on our, because in, I don't know. I think the part of the reason we wrote that article is because there's a um, like a tradition in in the maritime world of like one captain per boat kind of thing, and it's usually the man. And in our relationship, uh, off the boat, we're equals, and we both we make decisions jointly, and um, and it, it feels like an equal partnership. And so we felt like that should continue on the boat as well. And honestly, like Fiona had a lot more experience sailing than I did. So it would be silly for me to try and uh, assume a captain-like role on the boat when I know much less about sailing. And conversely, like Fiona was saying, um, I know a lot more about mechanics and maybe some of the physics of sailing. So uh, there were we both had relevant input a lot of the time. And unless it was like a really dire situation, we found that we didn't need to resort to one person deciding over the other person. There was usually time to try out both two scenarios if uh, we had a difference of opinion about something, or we had time to just talk it through a little bit and come up with, and then someone would usually, like when you're not defensive, um, then you, and you start to see the other person's point of view, you can actually, through a little discussion like that, you can say, okay yeah that's actually right like I remember Fiona um, we had a little disagreement about sail trim and through talking about it I realized Fiona's right about the sail trim uh, and and we didn't have to try my way because after just sort of talking about it a little bit I realized oh no actually that makes more sense the way that she's set it up so that's the way we went with it and I think that was our two captain philosophy and we weren't tried where we had to very often to make a decision in the next 15 seconds um, we a couple of times that happened, and it because we know each other quite well and each other's strengths. Um, the person who was strongest in whatever we needed to make a decision on in fifteen seconds basically just did it, and the other person fell into line very easily. So, it took the two captain philosophy. Just took it takes a bit of time. You have to understand each other and each other's strengths pretty well, and be a little bit humble about it. Mm -hmm. Cool, cool. No, that's 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 neat, and uh, I think it's, it's neat that you guys. We're able to make that work. Yeah, and too, like I don't think it's there are lots of boats that work really well where one person on board is the captain, the other person totally accepts that and is, um, you know, uh, plays a supporting role or, or has other spheres of uh, influence. 
Um, so we don't mean to denigrate that at all. That's a totally a fine system. We we don't have anything against it. It's just that it, for our relationship, uh, we found this system would work better. Yeah, yeah, and and I like I think you hear a lot about as you're saying sort of um, younger people talking about pink and blue jobs. And um, one thing I certainly found um, because because you're in an environment, um, or what I found for myself was that. I often had to push myself a little bit to to step into the things that I found scarier and say practice at them. Like I hate four deck work, like not my not my favorite to be up there. Um, and uh, I think in a lot of a lot of cases, the reasons that maybe we sort of default into pink and blue roles um, is is sort of just a reaction to like one person, um, and often men have more. Um, Experience. More, ex- more experience, like in, uh, in in certain roles, or I think even more more than experience, they're just like used to pushing through, like being uncomfortable because they don't want to look um, not strong um, by not stepping up into those roles. And so I I realized like a lot of the time that I, I need to push myself into um, just doing things I'm uncomfortable with because uh, I think uh, yeah, and I suppose that's where a lot of these sort of gender roles on boats come from. And I think we both really made a concerted effort to be constantly stepping into the, you know, the other's domains. So, for example, for me, like, I don't need to know everything about the engine, but I need to know enough that um, if a filter clogs or, you know, certain things happen that I can deal with it. Um, So I would try, uh, rather than always being Robin checking over the engine, though he did it most of the time, I'd make sure to incorporate that into my routine that I was doing it such that um, I had enough knowledge to deal with any safety issues. Um, yeah, so I, I think I think there's, uh, yeah, both of us tried very much to step into sort of each other's domains on a regular enough basis that it was possible for either of us to do anything on the boat. Cool. No, that, that's neat. And I think, I think it's a testament to you, you two guys, too, because it's, you know, in a relationship, oftentimes it's easy for people to kind of fall into their their regular, you know, status quo kind of roles. And, and so you guys kind of pushing yourselves to, to uh, to learn what the other is doing is, is neat. It's cool. Um, so I want to kind of transition and, and, um, and talk about waterborne. Um, so what is the, uh, what's the goal for the magazine and, and how did, uh, how did it come about? Uh, yeah, well, it came about, um, coming up close on two years ago. Now, um, we've had a really, uh, close relationship with a magazine called good old boat magazine. Um, and they're awesome. Uh, like they've taught us so much about boating. They do really great DIY articles. Um, and it's all about old boats. So it's, it's, they call themselves the boating magazine for the rest of us. And that really resonated for us. Um, old uh, boats being anything. Yeah. Plastic. And before 2010, before. basically like it's, they're not super old boats, Yeah, but an awesome magazine. And, um, we've been working with them, writing articles for them for, a year when they approached us and said, uh, you know, we'd love to see more young faces in sailing. Um, and we agreed that was, um, it was pretty typical. Um, we found most of our friends in sailing were, uh, you know, kind of silver haired and, um, we didn't see a lot of young people out on the water. And I think it's because it's a different set of challenges that young people face in going sailing, going cruising, um, so we, we thought that was a great idea and, uh, we started, um, originally it was called Young and Salty and, uh, we've since changed the name to Waterborne. Um, but we started that as a site that really addressed, uh, millennials, 
needs in sailing. Um, so, uh, yeah, different, a different take on sailing lifestyle culture um, coming from a, a younger perspective. Yeah, no, I, I've, and I've really enjoyed um, re- reading the website. It's, it's, I think it's great. Um, Thank you. So, yeah, yeah. And, and with, so with that kind of with younger sailors being the focus, do you, I mean, do you have any idea of what some of those numbers are in terms of people uh, getting numbers on that? Um, yeah, I wrote, I wrote, Actually, yeah, we're the ones pretty much, Fiona's the one doing numbers on that. So. I, nice. Well, no, I, wrote, I, wrote a, I wrote a piece on, on that for Boat US um, about a year ago. And um, the numbers as far as boat buyers are dropping off fairly steeply. Um, less and less and less millennials are buying boats. Uh, and I thought that was kind of interesting and got around to interviewing probably about 50 plus uh, millennials in boating, both power and sail, to, to really find out like, what's, you know, what's the deal? Why are we not buying boats as a generation? And um, there were a few things that, that came out of that, which were really interesting. And one of them um, was that millennials earn about 20% on average less than what our parents were earning at our age. Um, our uh, net asset value is like 50%. Um, I might have to go back and check those numbers, but I believe 50% of what our parents was at that age. On top of that, we've got um, debt uh, for school, among other things. So really from like a purely financial perspective, not looking at anything else, it makes sense why um, we're not buying luxury items because you know we're not getting around to buying our houses until later. We're not buying cars until later. Um, so from an economic standpoint, it, it makes sense that we're not uh, we're not buying our boats in our twenties. Um, so that. But uh, sorry, just to because yeah. I think he was also asking about uh, what the numbers and are like. Um, so would you say that there are fewer millennials boating or just buying boats? So I would say there there are fewer millennials buying boats. Um, but what I did find when I looked at um, participation rates, though the numbers are not very clear um, because nobody's, I think, really looked at this since 2012. Um, but, but it would look that uh, millennials aren't partic- necessarily participating um, as uh, at, at, they're not, the participation is not declining at the rate that um, boat ownership, boat ownership is declining and, gotcha. and, gotcha. and millennials are, are getting on the water other ways, whether that's renting boats, riding along. Um, there's a whole slew of kind of like Airbnb, my boat, um, models out there as well, peer to peer, um, boating. So yeah, that was, that was the big takeaway buying boats less. Um, but there still seems to be a strong, a strong interest, um, as far as participation. Goes. And it, it seems like there's definitely a, um, like uh, if you look at the demographics for a lot of the other sailing magazines and sailing magazine websites, you find that uh, the average demographic, the average uh, reader is over 60 um, or over 60% of readers are in the bracket 55 to 80 or something like that. And for Waterborne, what we've tried to do is uh, cultivate sort of the younger culture just by sharing stories and just even our own perspective, it just happens to be a younger perspective. Like we care about different things slightly and we present things in a different, slightly different way. Um, but that's not to say that the part of the rebrand from Young and Salty to Waterborne was so that it wasn't exclusively young. It's just now it's a little bit more inclusive. We'll, we'll publish stories from people beyond the millennial and Gen X generations. 
Um, but what we found is that uh, there is a resonance with the way that Waterborne presents information. And so the demographics that we attract are, it's over 50% under 50, which is uh, pretty much uh, the reciprocal of what the other sailing magazines have out there. So uh, at least for Waterborne, there is is a, a much younger component interested in, in sailing, or that's what we're finding. And a, and a more female component as well. Mm-hmm. Cool, cool. No, that's 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 a that's great. Um, and, and what do you think? What do you think is the limiting factor for young people? You think it's? I mean, it's, it sounds like probably money is is a big one. Uh, time, experience. Um, any yeah. any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think money is the big one. Um, second to that is uh, mechanical uh, knowledge and experience. So whereas um, our parents' generation, you know, they all grew up with shop class and working on cars, and so working on boats is is kind of um, you know they're not missing that foundational skill set. Um, whereas for millennials, um, you know, we were all building websites and uh, instead of uh, you know fixing up cars in in shop class. So there's a there's a lacking of foundational knowledge, and it's a bigger learning curve. Um, on the other hand, we have YouTube um, and all kinds of great resources well, to help us yeah. overcome that. Um, I think there's also a, there's a cultural difference um, between uh, millennials and maybe previous generations. Um, you hear a lot about sort of other luxury sports and brands struggling in the same way that boating has. For example, golf um, is one I've heard to a certain extent. Downhill skiing is another. Um, where where millennials are are saying, well, you know, I'm not gonna. They're not investing in the same sort of uh, luxury products that they used to like luxury for us is having a really nice iphone like the latest iphone and that's our our status symbol whereas back in our parents day i think um you know having a super nice boat would have been would have been a status symbol um whereas i feel like millennials kind of uh sort of back away from that um today if that makes yeah, sense. yeah. Uh, yeah it's probably less of an emphasis on owning large material assets mm-hmm. in in the uh, younger culture i would say and just a we're okay renting stuff we're we yeah. don't have to own it uh, it makes it, in some ways we think it's a lot smarter to rent something and use it for you know a couple of weeks out of a year as opposed to owning something and using it for a couple of weeks out of the year uh, it's just a slight mentality shift, and that might also become becoming because we just don't have the same amount of disposable income uh, to put towards a large asset like that. So it makes sense to rent it, um, but it might just be that we have so many other options out there too. Uh, not owning a car in the city, it's prepared us for renting other things in our lives. Most people can't own a home in a big city: Vancouver, Toronto, New York, London, like. It's beyond the range of most people. So renting is is just something that uh, we're used to. So renting a boat is no different. Yeah, and why own a ski cabin if you can Airbnb it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that's interesting. That all I think that all makes makes a lot of sense. Um, so, uh, so Robin, I wanted to ask you about um, an article you wrote uh, about paper versus electronic charts, uh, and some of maybe the uh, kind of the religious fervor that that subject inspires. Yeah, that's funny. Uh, I knew that was going to be controversial when I wrote it, uh, but I, I wrote it a little bit after the U.S. Coast Guard said that you don't need paper charts on board. So I figured I had good backing on that one. Um, when we crossed the Pacific, we had a full set of photocopied paper charts, um, which we did in Mexico. 
because it's not legal. And we never use them, not even once, uh, for any reason. What we had, because we're just used to it, we had a lot of technology on board, and we had, I think, four... I guess we had actually five GPS, different GPS, standalone GPS units, um, and a couple of ways to charge them so that we couldn't run out of power. And we also had three different chart sets. So in many ways, with the electronic charts, we had way better charts than you could possibly have with just paper charts. And with GPS, you always know much closer to where you are. Um, and when you understand the limitations of GPS, like in one case, we were coming into a through uh, like into a coral atoll, and there was a narrow pass to get in there. Had we relied exclusively on our electronic charts, uh, we would have hit the reef. But you could see where the pass was, and it was 15 feet over from where the electronic chart said it was. So you just use your head a little bit, and you go 15 feet over, and you go through the pass there instead of running straight into the reef. Um, but in every other instance, the electronic charts worked really well. I would say that the big my caveat for using exclusively electronic charts is that they it's they are more prone to uh techn like they are prone to technology failure whereas a paper chart isn't unless it gets wet um but i if you have a couple of backup systems i think that's where i feel comfortable like nowadays if we were to do that crossing again we still might take a bunch of photocopied uh paper charts as long as it didn't cost us very much but we would rely again exclusively on electronic charts cool cool and, and why do you think people have such a uh I don't, like a you know they really kind of are obsessed with that idea of you, you got to have the backup and or it seems like there's certainly a, a, a certain like orthodoxy among um people who are you know getting getting their boats ready to cross oceans yeah i think that orthodoxy is the exact right word uh, I think it's just, it's tradition. I think it'll take a little bit of time for people to learn and trust their technology. People who, especially who didn't grow up with it, we all grew up with computers, so we don't, we trust them maybe a little bit more inherently. Um, but I think it's just a time thing. I think the, the Coast Guard recognizing that, uh, electronic charts are enough now is sort of like this, the sea change, um, that I think everybody will just accept electronic charts. I think the more people I talk to, the less people I hear who carry paper charts on board, and especially younger sailors. And we had we didn't run into any anybody who had a horror story from just using exclusively electronic charts. I think the orthodoxy is just a holdover from a bygone era. I think it, like a lot of people really think that you should carry a sextant on board as well. And we had a sextant on board, which we also didn't use because we didn't even know how to use it. So, and before the sextant, whatever the, the piece of technology was, I bet that they, uh, they thought, well, we can't trust a sextant. We got to have this other, you know, plumb line or whatever it was at the time in case the sextant fails. And then people got used to the sextant and they just used sextant. So as technology gets better and better, and as you have redundant systems on board and you really understand them, I think that, uh, things like paper charts will just fall by the wayside. Yeah. And I think redundancy is probably the, uh, the word, the word there. Yeah, yeah definitely. it definitely is. It truly is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I was looking through uh, looking through Instagram, and I saw that you guys were in France for the start of the Golden Globe, um, and you had a picture there of, of uh, Sue Haley and Joshua wrapped it up. What was uh, what was that like? What was it like seeing the competitors and meeting the competitors? Talk about that a little bit. Oh man, it was so cool. Like it was just um, an awesome experience. I uh, Robin didn't come out. Um, I went out. Um, this summer and uh it, it's a little surreal you know you to be standing especially in front of those two boats which 
um, for me represented, you know, the stories that inspired us to go on a trip in the first place. I mean, I know so many young cruisers who have Matissiers and uh, Sir Robin Knox Johnson's books in their, you know, on their boats. Um, so yeah, it was a really surreal experience and, and getting to shake Robin Knox Johnson's hand was just um, really, really cool. Um, I, something about that race just totally inspires me. Um, and I think probably a lot of people who are into old boats uh, because it's, it's pitting man against the ocean, um, not man plus technology against the ocean. Um, and uh, these the guys who are in this race, I mean, they're they're the real deal. They're um, they're people like you and me with more experience um, in a lot of cases. Uh, but they're they've you know Estevan Kopar, who is the only American competitor. He's in sixth place at the moment. Like the guy, you know, he he sold his house to pay for his boat. He, he's almost he does have sponsors, but you know he was mostly self funded. Um, and he, uh, you know, for a month at a time was living away from his wife so he could be on the boat working on the boat. Um, like the sacrifices these guys made just to get to the start line was immense. And and many people didn't even make it to the start line. Um, you know, there's one fellow who's dismasted going around the horn, um, right. just trying to get, just trying to get to France. So, um, you really appreciate the, uh, what these guys are sacrificing, um, just to be there. Uh, and, uh, and of course it's been a really exciting race to watch. Um, there were quite a few people who fell out in the first couple of weeks. Um, and of course there was the, the big, um, uh, the couple of weeks big ago, rescue, the yeah. big rescue with uh, Abilash Tomi and Gregor Magukan. Um, and I just heard actually, so Abilash Tomi was, uh, um, as you might've read, um, knocked down and suffered a serious back injury, um, it, which I've just heard recently. He's been, he's been, um, had, had surgery and has got a, a Mac back <laughs> with a uh, several metal pieces in it. So really just highlights the danger uh, of what these guys are doing out there. Yeah, no. It seems like they they had to go all in, kind of a, in, on many different levels. It's 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 a cool thing to watch. I'm glad those two guys made it out all right. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that was a huge, huge relief. Um, but it just goes to show, you know, like you take away the technology, and it is just as hard as it was back then. And those guys, I mean, they do have safety gear on board that that they can use, of course, in in. Um, um, in case of cases of emergency, but other than that, they are, uh, they're doing it just like it was done 50 years ago with a sextant and, and no technology paper charts. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to think about. I wonder, you know, with, with like with modern weather, weather forecasting, like if, if you were able to download Gribs, you wonder if those guys would have been able to, to avoid the worst of that storm or, I mean, it was, you know, looking at the, the weather charts, it was like, it was just massive and it, it almost seems like they were going to get steamrolled no matter what. You'd have to really head north, I guess, but it's, it's interesting to think about. Yeah, I mean, to me, coming into the, you know, leading up to the race, that was certainly what I saw as the highest risk, risk component. Robin and I, there's no way we would have done our trip had it not been for modern weather and i know a lot of cruisers who feel the same way you know um you can figure out celestial navigation you can figure out how to do it without a water maker um but but yeah weather weather is a huge and critical piece and, and it's it, it is i don't know i haven't looked at it closely enough really or if whether or not they could have avoided that if they could have gotten ahead enough heads up uh 
yeah, that's a that's a tough one. It's uh, it, 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 they, maybe they couldn't do anything about it. So the the modern forecasting in that case might not have mattered. But there is a chance that it did. Like in the Vendée Globe, you don't hear very often about two boats getting dismasted. Um, and those boats that they were on were they're tough boats. Solid they boats, weren't. Yeah. yeah, they were well found boats. So and very very experienced sailors. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, so what's what's next for you guys and and Waterborne? Uh, we we're just uh, continuing on as I guess expanding what what we've been doing. Um, we have been uh, we actually just designed T-shirts the other day, which we're very excited cool. about. <laughs> um, so we'll have some swag. So we'll have some swag in the in Excellent. the near just in time for for Christmas shopping. Um, yeah, but we want to expand on what we've been doing, featuring more voices. Um, I. What I've been loving lately, we've, we've had tons of people guest posting, sharing their stories. And uh, I really want to keep building that, that sense of community. Um, so yeah, if you're, if you're out there listening and you've got a story you want to tell about sailing, or, or maybe it's like a really smart new way you found of doing something on your boat or way of saving money, like drop us a line and, and, uh, we'd love to, to share it with the broader community and we can all learn from each other. And I think too, part of the rebrand was that, um, the focus is on water sports. It's, it, it has been on sailing and, and there's a bit of a, uh, I, I guess a move to, to give a bit more voice to as as younger people we have a variety of different interests that involve the water so a lot of people have stand-up paddle boards on board or kite, kayaks on board kite, or kite boards, kite boards or kayaks yeah, etc and so cool. um cool. branching out a little bit and celebrating some of that culture too because it's all like it's it's all water sport stuff and you often on so many of the boats that we traveled around with there were these other you know, modes of water transport. So that's the idea of waterborne being carried by the water. And so it's lots of different, so we'll be featuring more stories from, uh, not just, not just sailboats. Yeah. We have one coming up, actually a couple of brothers who sailed through the Northwest passage and, uh, went kiteboarding. I think I don't, they may be the first to kiteboard in the Northwest passage. I don't know anybody else who's done <laughs> that. So yeah. That's hardcore. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> finding, um, I think boats can be uh, they can be base camp, you know, and there's a lot of cool people doing stuff, whether it's climbing, um, doing climbing trips related, you know, on their boats or surfing trips or so. Yeah, just kind yeah. of embracing the spirit of adventure on the water. Yeah, culture around sailing. Mm-hmm. Cool, cool. Um, well, I want to I want to be respectful of your time, but I've got a, a few more quick questions here, um, if, if that's all right. Uh, yeah, yeah your, your questions are so good that uh, it's no problem at all. Oh, shucks. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, uh, what advice would you give your, your former selves, kind of in hindsight, as you were preparing uh, to leave on your, your trip? It's a, yeah, it's a good question. We talked about it lots. In, I thought well, it's tough because you, you, can't, you, knowing, you, can't, you can't change anything in the past because it'll change what you know now. And we know these things because of what happened in the past. That's sort of like time travel conundrum. I would tell right. my my former self, get a boat that's not a wreck. Like yeah. don't don't put so much work into a boat you don't need to. Um, and in in the long run, you know, you probably save more money if you don't do that. So, and as much fun as we had in the yard, I think it was also stressful at times. And we almost didn't make that weather window to leave that year. Um, so I think that's that's one of the biggest advices I'd give yeah. to us. I think also as much as you can by yourself time, whether that's wait, maybe maybe it's working a little bit longer, maybe it's um, 
taking a break halfway through so that you can go back and make money. Um, but it certainly cost us more than we thought it would, um, as a lot of things seem to do in life. So yeah, have, have a good, um, sort of bit of savings because it's going to give you options and hopefully more time out there. Um, we actually had been planning to cross in our first year across the Pacific and we didn't because after sailing to Mexico, we had some family stuff happen. We realized we weren't experienced enough. We weren't feeling comfortable. It just didn't feel right. And so we didn't cross and we went home and worked for six months because um, we'd also run out of money by that point. <laughs> so yeah, I think that certainly win the lottery if you can before going <laughs> sailing, but if you can't um, try to find ways of, of staying flexible um, because it, it is, you know, you can really stress yourself out and also put yourself in very uncomfortable situations if you're trying to push through, um, weather windows where you're not ready or do things on a timeline. Um, we had planned to go for a year and our trip turned into two and a half years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Flexibility is important and not being, uh, stuck in an expectation of what it's going to look like. Cause when you're out there, things have a tendency to change rather quickly and, um, and it's good to be able to go with those changes. Cool, cool. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a uh, good advice. Um, and then, and then finally, I always, I've been asking everybody I've, I've been talking to you uh, favorite sailing songs. Any any favorite sailing tunes? Oh yeah, for sure. Lyle Lovett. Um, if I if, had I, a if boat. I had a boat, I don't like that <laughs> right song. Robin yeah, hates a song, but I played it <laughs> ad nauseum on our crossing on my ukulele. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, Stan Rogers' Northwest Passage. Yeah. Yes. Or Barrett's, yes, Barrett's yeah. Privateers. We yeah. love that one, yes. too. Barrett's Privateers. Yes. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, uh, my, my in-laws always go to, or, they, or they've been to uh, Stan Fest up in uh, Halifax, I think it is. Yeah. But I guess I guess every year they've got a big party and they there's a bunch of people who, who sing Stan Rogers' tunes. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, it's, uh, yeah, it's wicked stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Something really cool. If you're into like musical, like sailing, sailing music, there is a sea shanty festival, which I just missed when I was out in, um, for the Golden Globes in, uh, in Falmouth. And I've always wanted to go to that. It's like they, that whole town, all of Falmouth is, you know, they live and breathe sea shanties. Yeah. They were singing when you went to the bar, everybody just broke into sea shanties yeah. at one point. It's it was, like, it was awesome. Going back in time. That, that sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. Um, Cool. Well, thanks. Thank you guys so much for your time. Um, I guess uh, tell us where where everybody can find you online. Waterborne, uh, yep. waterbornemag.com, is that right? Waterbornemag.com. And we're on Pinterest and Facebook and Instagram. Um, so you can find us there as well. Awesome. Um, yeah. Th thanks again. Thanks so much for, for taking the time to talk. Uh, keep up the good work. I, I look forward to, uh, to following along. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Chris. Thanks we appreciate so it. So there you have it, Fiona McGlynn, Robin Urquhart, and Waterborne Magazine. You can find them at www.waterbornemag.com, uh, and that is spelled W-A-T-E-R-B-O-R-N-E, mag, M-A-G.com, uh, and on Twitter and Instagram at Waterborne Mag. Uh, and I want to thank uh, Fiona and Robin for being so generous with their time uh, and their thoughts and, and their experiences. I had a lot of fun talking with these guys and, and picking their brains. Um, and there's a couple of things that jumped out at me from our conversation. Um, uh, one thing is that in hindsight, they were ambivalent about refits. 
And while they learned a ton from the process, the time and money equation often means it, it makes more sense to try and find a boat that's, that's more or less ready to go, uh, which is largely how I feel about the refit that Ryan and I did to Firefly, uh, albeit on a, on a smaller scale. Um, I also thought what they had to say about sailboat arbitrage was really interesting, uh, you know, kind of a potentially a, a different way to pay, pay for a sailing trip. Um, and then finally, early on in the conversation, you may have caught them say that their life now, that they have moved ashore, actually more closely resembles their time spent living aboard than it does their lives before they went sailing. Uh, and I think that's pretty cool and speaks to the potential that, that sailing has for, for transforming a person or, or a couple uh, and just offering a deeper kind of outside perspective on the, on the choices we make and the ways in which we, we spend our time. So thanks again to Robin and Fiona, and thanks to you for listening in. As always, it is endlessly surprising and gratifying as well uh, that there are people who are, are checking this out. So thanks. A quick side note, I got to give a shout out to uh, Andrew and Sarah, the fine crew of Scrappy, who came along for our daughter Linnea's first sail a few weeks back now. And uh, it was nice having an extra couple sets of hands on the boat, and it was it was nice spending time with them as well. We had a lot of fun hanging, uh, talking, talking sailing and talking babies. So... Uh, I give a shout out to them, and if you, the listener, feel so inclined to drop me a line, uh, you can do so at thebonnieboat at gmail.com. Until next time. That's it for this episode of The Bonnie Boat. Thanks for listening. I know time is my most scarce resource these days, so I appreciate you, uh, choosing to spend your time listening here. One of the reasons I decided to throw my hat into the podcast ring is to get in touch with other like-minded sailing maniacs. To that end, if you have any comments or suggestions, you can email me at thebonnieboat at gmail.com. You can find us online at thebonnieboat.wordpress.com. And remember, to be a sailor, you don't need a YouTube channel with 100,000 video subscribers. You don't need an Instagram account with pictures of beautiful people in their bathing suits. You certainly don't need a podcast. You don't even need a boat. You just need to go sailing. Until next time, this is Firefly standing by on Channel 16.